My brother, Lil Wayne, immediately texted me, man, we can't stop court storming, Skip. You sounded your age up there just now. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 102. A score in golf I haven't shot since I was a 14-year-old beginner. A score I hope I don't ever shoot again. This, as always, is the unundisputed everything I cannot share with you during the debate show that is undisputed. And by the way, today... You might see at my side is my breakfast of champions, my diet Mountain Dew that I usually have one of before Undisputed. I have one at the ready today because, weirdly, I have a cold. I I don't think I've ever had a cold unless I had one when I was a little kid. I did have COVID for a second time about, I don't know, what was it, five, six weeks ago. And I thought, oh, my God, am I getting COVID again? I did test. I don't have COVID. I couldn't have COVID, right? Too many antibodies. But <clears throat> I'm a little coffee because of my head cold and my drainage. So if I need to take a swig, I'm ready to take a swig. I got my throat lozenge just in case I get a little coffee. And here we go. Today, I will tell you why Lil Wayne was so wrong when he condemned me as old for my stance on court storming. Today, I will tell you why, once again, Patrick Mahomes is being way overrated. I'll also tell you about my wild night at a Hollywood premiere for a documentary that's dropping on Amazon Prime about the kid Leroy. Me, the kid with the kid, I'll tell you about it. I'll also tell you about another wild night I had here in Los Angeles at a Kings game. Not a King game as in LeBron at Crypto.com Arena. A Kings game as in hockey, which I will explain to you, still comes off as very hokey to me. Hockey is just hokey. And finally, I'll answer several, excuse me, several of your questions. One about my recent hole-in-one at Brentwood Country Club here in Los Angeles that apparently is ruining hole number seven for guests who play at Brentwood. And finally, a question about whether I've ever been an outdoorsman. Me, an outdoorsman? Tell you about it. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. So the hottest topic this week on Undisputed was court storming of all topics. Monday morning, as we came back from vacation, I said ban court storming. My brother Lil Wayne immediately texted me, and trust me, he does not hold back in his texts, as close as we are. He texted me, man, and it was 
M with a bunch of A's and a bunch of N's. Man. He said, we can't stop court storming, Skip. You sounded your age up there just now. You sounded your age up there just now, meaning on live TV on Undisputed. You know what? The more I've thought about that text, that shot that Wayne took at me, I actually think Wayne is the one showing his age. I think Wayne and Keyshawn Johnson, anyone else who's out there right now supporting court storming is showing their age. They're the ones who are being old school on this. I'm new school. They're the ones living in the past. I'm the one looking to the revolutionary future on this issue. I'm the one who's been ahead of the curve on this issue for 20 years. I started campaigning for the banning of court storming 20 years ago on live TV on a show called Cold Pizza in New York City on ESPN2. Not sure how much I had to do with it, but soon after I started to campaign, my conference where I went to school at Vanderbilt, the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, was the first conference to start fining schools for court storming or field storming, for that matter, after football games. My school, Vanderbilt, was fined for the fourth time about a year ago after a basketball game at home, Memorial Gym, when we finally beat our arch-rival Tennessee for the first time in 10 years. We court-stormed. And we got fined $250,000, as we should have been. So my young-minded question-everything point is, what fool out there decided court storming should be a memorably essential part of the college experience? What fool came up with that notion? Keyshawn Johnson tells me on Undisputed, oh, these kids, they have to pay all this money to go to these schools. Court storm is just part of the college experience. It is? Why? So let me get this straight. Students should be allowed to get drunk and join hundreds of other students running full speed onto the basketball court with several seconds remaining on the clock in a big upset of a ranked visiting team, they should be allowed to dash right up to the opposing players and taunt them in their faces as they try, usually unsuccessfully, to get off the court while trusting that said opposing star players don't just deck them. That's coming. Just wait. And then these hundreds and hundreds of students, some if not many of them drunk, rush and mob their own players in such an out-of-control frenzy 
that heaven help us if one of the students falls, one of the players falls and gets trampled. This is insane, ladies and gentlemen. This is a recipe for disaster. This is an E-R-S-O-S. This is hundreds upon hundreds of potential lawsuits. This is just so wrong. There's nothing college cute about this. There's nothing remotely memory-making romantic about any of this. This should not be what you do while you're in college. Explain to me how, Wayne, how how did this ivy-covered tradition ever get grandfathered in in the first place without some younger-minded somebody saying, wait a second, what are we doing? My God. Day passed. Bill Self. Man I know and highly respect. Stood up and said, it's time to ban court storming. Then Penny Hardaway, another coach and ex-player, I respect to the heavens, stood up and said, it's time to ban court storming. Then Alabama's athletic director stood up and said exactly what silly old me said on live TV on Monday on Undisputed. He said, if you court storm, you forfeit. He said, that'll stop it, right? That would stop it. That would save some college kids from themselves, from their their court storming selves. That would save some college stars from getting run into or getting taunted in the face. That would save us from one of the silliest, most dangerous traditions out there in sports, court and field storming by college kids. I'll end this rant with a quick story about my freshman year at Vanderbilt. I know it was a long time ago, Wayne. But for some inexplicable, insane reason, at that point there was a tradition at Vanderbilt that when our arch rival Tennessee, the volunteers, the Big Orange, when they visited Memorial Gym, that Vanderbilt students would smuggle in and throw oranges at the orange-clad volunteers. Throw oranges, as in fruit, at the volunteers. I'm not sure an orange could kill you if it hit you. Maybe if it hit you just right. Could it hurt you? Sure, it could. If you got pelted by oranges, it would be the equivalent of getting stoned. No, not quite, but wouldn't be cool. So all day, the day of that game, all I heard in the hallways of the dorm. You got your oranges? You got your orange? You got your oranges? You got your oranges? I'm like, I guess so. It's tradition. It's what we do. So I smuggled in one orange. Some had two or three. And at some point in unison, 
we all fired our oranges onto the floor. The idea was to throw them at visiting players. I didn't have the heart. I think I knew better. But I did half-heartedly lob my orange from maybe the second row of the student section onto the floor. I did not aim at a player. I just threw it to throw it, to say I did it. And now that I look back at that tradition, I think, what were we thinking? And the point is, we weren't. Okay, every once in a while, speaking of rants, I do a topic on this show just because I need to, just for me, just because it's stuck in my craw. And I just got to release it. I got to exercise it. I got to get it out of my gut like the alien in Alien, if you know what I'm talking about. This topic is that topic. So a couple of days after the Super Bowl, I got into it on air on Undisputed with my guys, Keyshawn and Michael Irvin, about how I still believe with all my heart and soul that Joe Burrow is better than Patrick Mahomes. Maybe just a little better, but just better than Patrick Mahomes. And I can back it up and I can prove it. What I can't defend is Joe Burrow staying healthy because he hasn't been healthy, as you well know. Not consistently. But I definitely can defend what he did at San Francisco versus that 49er defense this past season versus what Patrick Mahomes did or didn't do against that same 49er defense in the Super Bowl. And by the way, speaking of Super Bowls, just allow me to quickly reiterate. So Patrick's played now in four Super Bowls. First one, he's down 20 to 10 late third quarter and throws an interception that could have been disastrous. Still down 20 to 10, fourth quarter, throws another interception that should have been the final nail in the coffin, except his rival quarterback was Jimmy G, as in Garoppolo, who fell apart in the fourth quarter, three of 11 interception, missed Emmanuel Sanders running wide open at the goal line. And back, Kansas City roared. And Mahomes was really good late in that game because the 49ers weren't. They won it going away, as you recall. Did the Chiefs 31-20. to Man, was he in danger in that game. Super Bowl number two for Patrick. He runs up against Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. And he gets his butt kicked 31 to nine. And he stinks in that game. I won't go into the gory details, but you remember. Stunk. Then a year ago against the Eagles, in that torchable Eagles defense that Dak Prescott had just thrown 347 yards worth against. 
Patrick struggled all game. He managed 182 yards passing in that Super Bowl. If Jalen Hurts hadn't lost the handle on a read option pitch or keep, I don't know what he was going to do. He just lost the handle. It got scooped and it got scored. And if Kadarius Toney hadn't broken free in the middle of the fourth quarter for a 65-yard punt return down to the five-yard line, I'm not sure the Chiefs would have lived to tell about that game. But they did. And even though Patrick threw for a grand total of 182 yards, he won. Remember, Tom Brady averaged 304 yards passing in 10 Super Bowls. And in that one, Patrick threw for 182. But who's counting? And then in this most recent Super Bowl, it took a muffed punt in the third quarter after Patrick had thrown an interception, a muffed punt, a blown punt, a kicked punt, that set up the Kansas City Chiefs at the 16-yard line of the 49ers. And before they could get their defense set, Mahomes struck. That was the only touchdown scored in regulation by the Chiefs, who managed four other field goals, including a late one, to tie it at 19. So Patrick was very lucky to score one touchdown against that San Francisco defense. One touchdown in regulation. He was great in overtime, I give you that. But only 19 points. Hmm, interesting. So, if you might remember, Joe Burrow went to San Francisco fairly late in the season. And all he did was, against that same 49er defense that Mahomes struggled against, All Joe Burrow did against that defense was play the best quarterback game I saw all season long. The best. Number one, if I had to rank quarterback games that I saw. And remember, Lamar Jackson had a great one on Christmas night at San Francisco, but it wasn't quite what Joe Burrow pulled off because Joe went 28 of 32 against the 49ers. 28, this is at San Francisco, not on a neutral field in Las Vegas. 28 of 32 for 283 yards, Joe Burrow did, with three touchdowns and no interceptions and a QBR of 90, 9-0 on a scale of 0 to 100. He also ran it six times for 43 yards because Joe Burrow is a very underrated runner of the football. So is Patrick. I give you that. But Lamar's game, he was 25 of 35 on Christmas night for 257. So about 30-ish yards short of what Burrow did. And Lamar ran it seven times for 45 yards in that throttling of the 49ers. Seven for 45 versus six for 43 for Burrow. So it's a wash. Burrow's game was slightly better than Lamar Jackson's was at San Francisco. Joe Burrow is slightly better than Patrick Mahomes. Joe Burrow is now three and one lifetime against Mahomes head to head because he won the first three, including an AFC championship game head to head at Arrowhead. And his only loss was in an AFC championship game at Arrowhead. 
And if you recall in that game, remember Joseph Asai of the Bengals? The mind-blowing, sort of mindless penalty, the out-of-bounds hit on Mahomes that set up on a crucial third and four, the 45-yard walk-off penalty with the 15-yard, excuse me, 45-yard field goal with the 15-yard penalty. It took that penalty for Mahomes to escape Burrow that game. Three and one lifetime against Patrick. And of course, Joe's only made it to the one Super Bowl. But the harder I look at that one Super Bowl, it was pretty great. That one Super Bowl against the Rams, Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, company, Von Miller. Rams eked it out 23 to 20. Joe Burrow was 22 of 33 for 263 with a touchdown and no interceptions. Pretty good. You recall what happened with a minute and 47 seconds left on a crucial third and six from the eight-yard line? Logan Wilson got called for a hold on Cooper Cup near the goal line. That was not a hold. It was an outrageous give it to the Rams penalty that allowed them to score the touchdown, that allowed them to escape. They were down 20 to 16 at that point, allowed them to escape 23 to 20. If only Joe Burrow could stay healthy. Burrow is just better than Mahomes. Mahomes has just stayed healthier. And I will go to my grave repeating all of the above again and again on Undisputed. Be ready, Keyshawn. Be ready, Michael. And thank you, my loyal listeners and viewers, for letting me to get that out of my craw. All right, quick confession. I did not tweet the other night about Max Struess's 59-foot buzzer-beating game winner at Cleveland against Dallas because, for once, I was not watching. I was following the score and the box score on my phone, but I was preoccupied for once, and I will tell you why. My friend Michael Ratner wanted me to attend the Hollywood premiere of his documentary, The Kids Are Growing Up, featuring the kid Leroy. Maybe you know him, maybe you don't. The kid Leroy is an exploding supernova of a star singer slash rapper an Australian by birth, now living in Los Angeles. This doc drops Thursday night, depending on when you're partaking of this, drops now, you could say, on Amazon Prime. Check it out. Michael, you might know as the showrunner, Michael Ratner is the showrunner for Kevin Hart's Cold as Balls. I did one of those shows 
few years back. Wildly successful, cold as balls. Now in season 10, believe it or not. In Michael's future are documentaries he's going to do on and with Kevin Durant and a movie on and with Johnny Manziel. So I believe so deeply in Michael Ratner that I told him I would suck it up and I would be there even on what I call a school night. Remember, I do have to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning And undisputed requires heavy lifting, heavy preparation nights before. So I tried for once to get as much work done as I could before five o'clock when my wife Ernestine and I left our place in a car service car, fought our way through the five o'clock traffic in Los Angeles down Santa Monica Boulevard, then up to Sunset Boulevard, and then up, up, up the hill to Mount Olympus Boulevard, to the end of Mount Olympus Boulevard, way up the hill, to the most spectacular high-on-a-hill Hollywood estate that I've ever had the pleasure of experiencing. This place with a theater in it, this is just somebody's home that they rent out, palatial estate. Theater seats, 120 people. It's tri-level. It's too nice to live in. It's it's just, it's one of those modernistic L.A. hillside homes that you just shake your head at and say, who could ever live there? Stunning view from the top level of the L.A. lights spreading for miles down below. I shook my head after a while and I said, well, once again, I've come a long way in that little two-bedroom, one-bathroom tract house of a house, 43rd Street in Oklahoma City. Lil Wayne was invited to this event. He thought about it, but couldn't make it, said he had too much work to do. He was on a roll with his creativity. But his manager, Mike G, was there because he also helps manage the kid, Leroy. And I think there were around 120 people there, many from the music business that I don't know. But many appeared to know me. There was some pointing and whispering. Mostly I interacted with the valet parkers and the guys doing security, some right out of Hollywood movies, some who actually do Hollywood movies, and of course the wait staff. Those are my kind of people. So Ernestine and I stayed interacted, rubbed elbows, schmoozed, all those things you do at a meet and greet. We stayed until the screening started, which was around 7, because that just as late as I could push it. So I still haven't been able to see Michael's doc, which I will watch 
on Friday night for a fact. But soon after we ducked, got back in our car service car, I texted Lil Wayne, said I saw Mike G, and he texted right back. And I quote the text, the coolest thing about that whole thing was that Skip and E showed up with four exclamation points. Then all caps, trust me, with two more exclamation points. I've gotten hit up all night about it from people who were at the premiere. That meant a lot to me. Ernestine did steal the show. I did have a very memorable night, even on a school night. I should do more of that. This question is from TJ from Detroit. What did you do on your week away from Undisputed? (sighs) TJ, I don't have a great answer for you because I actually did too much. Not enough of it fun. Understand, I had kept nose to the grindstone on Undisputed as we relaunched for six months, from August 28th all the way through the week after the Super Bowl. I put my life on hold for Undisputed. I do nothing domestically until I finally have a week off, and then I am booked solid. I had two dental appointments because even though I've never had a cavity, I had a little wear and tear where she needed to bond a little over here and a little over here in my molars. That took one session. Then I just needed a teeth cleaning. That took another session. Saw my family doctor for just a basic checkup with some blood work. Saw my wellness doctor for just a basic checkup, some other stuff. These things just take time. Ernestine and I needed to see a a laundry list of people that, that we just hadn't had time, that we had neglected to see over the previous six months. So we booked lunches and dinners and lunches and dinners all week long. We watched several movies. We did actually, thanks to my man here at FS1, Charlie Dixon, we did get around to watching Taylor Sheridan. I'm a big Taylor Sheridan fan, obviously, 1883, 1923, Yellowstone, but Taylor Sheridan's Lioness, I don't know if you've checked it out. We loved it, at least I did. Ernstine really loved it, but I had a little problem with the final scene. I won't spoil it for you if you're going to watch it, but the final shootout wasn't much of a shootout to me by Taylor Sheridan's standards. None of the good guys got hit, didn't get hit. So it was almost like John Wick-ish, you know, where a million bullets are shot. He doesn't get hit. But I will tell you this. I guess my most memorable moment of my week off came on Thursday night when I did something I never do. I went out with the guys. I never have time to go out with the guys because I'm always getting ready for Undisputed Friday night is date night. Saturdays, there's always games, college football games, then basketball games at night, and obviously Sunday NFL. 
prepping for Undisputed. I don't go out with the guys ever, but I went out with the guys, three friends of mine. They're all doctors. They're all very successful. They're all really good guys, like real guys. One's an eye surgeon. One's a plastic surgeon. One's my family doctor. But the eye surgeon is a huge hockey fan. And he badly wanted me to go along with them to a hockey game, to an L.A. Kings game down at Crypto.com Center. Crypto.com Arena. And does he ever have the seats? How could I refuse? He's got four next to the penalty box up against the glass, the plexiglass, whatever you call it. I mean, he's got a parking place underneath the arena that's 20 yards from the entrance. I mean, how can you say no to that? He's got VIP privileges to a room with a buffet that is just, it's as good as it gets. How can you say no? And I finally said, okay, Ernestine, I'm going. Okay. So we fight through the five o'clock traffic down to crypto. Kings versus the Nashville Predators. My eye surgeon friend said, well, it's your team because I went to Vanderbilt, Nashville. So it's the Predators. I don't know a thing about the Predators. Couldn't name a player on the Predators. I don't know a whole lot about hockey. But once again, I tried to get into hockey for that night against my Predators. And I failed. Because to me, hockey is and always will be hokey. Hockey is hokey. I just don't get it. I've tried and I have failed. But I will say this. The hockey fans, they get it. I've never experienced in my life of going to sports events all over this world, to World Cups and Wimbledons and British Opens. I've been everywhere and done everything. I was at the Miracle on Ice hockey game, the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid. I've done my fair share of hockey games. I've never experienced anything like hockey fans. And it hit me as we walked the 20 yards to the entrance that I felt like I was going to a game seven. And it was just some game in February. Again, the Kings had been fairly, I think they'd won five in a row at that point. Had playoff implications against the Predators. But again, it felt like a game seven. The energy was just spilling out of the building. Hockey fans are the most serious fans I know because I'm thinking, this is L.A., baby. This is, this is downtown Los Angeles. And, and all of a sudden, it's feeling like we're in New York or Boston or Chicago or Detroit. These people are serious. They're all in their game jerseys, favorite players, and 
I, I don't know that I've ever felt that kind of energy going to any other game here in L.A., and I've been to all of them. I've been to lots of Dodger games and lots of Ram games and obviously Laker games, and I've never felt the energy that I felt going into Crypto.com Arena on last Thursday night in February. Remember, the Anaheim Ducks are just right down the road in Orange County, so they're Southern California is supporting two hockey teams. So, what's my background with hockey? I did not play hockey growing up, and that's probably the key. I played football, I played basketball, I played baseball. I did not play hockey, but I probably went to six or eight minor league hockey games. They were the Oklahoma City Blazers then sort of a triple-H team, I think it was. We just went to watch the fighting. Well, in professional hockey, in NHL hockey, they don't fight much anymore, and when the playoffs come around, they don't fight at all. So we just went to watch the fights. It just seems so crazily out of control. It seems so cultish, which is now what the fans feel like to me. They're just crazy cultish in a great way. But then... I've told the story before. I'm at the Dallas Morning News covering the 1980 Winter Olympics. Friday night, I didn't have anything to write about. I thought, well, the U.S. is playing Russian hockey. What did Russia beat us in an exhibition game at Madison Square Garden? I think it was 10 to 1. I thought, mismatch. Anybody care? Nah, not really. Asked the press liaison, you got any seats left for the hockey game tonight? Yeah, I got a whole bunch. You want one? Sure. Sat in the front row of the press seating, Lake Placid Arena. You know what happened? Miracles happened. I was there. Happened to sit next to Larry Felser of the Buffalo News, hockey guru, who talked me through the whole game. After a while, I started thinking, they're going to win. The U.S. is going to pull this off. In Dallas, when I did talk radio, I had to talk about the Dallas Stars so a former girlfriend of mine hooked me up with a NHL coach that she knew very well, and he gave me all the background, you know, the quasi sort of dirt on the league, all the ins and outs of the league. I talked a lot about hockey on talk radio, but I never could get into it. So it hit me again as I sat there with my nose up against the glass, best seat in the house. Hockey just leaves me cold. My opinions on hockey just remain frozen, unmeltable. They say it's the best game to watch live. You could have fooled me on that one. For me, even watching it live, maybe I was almost too close to the action. It's all just a blur. It's a high-speed Blur. Obviously, they can skate like, like you, you can't imagine humans can skate that fast, stop on a dime. Puck hits the plexiglass. They hit the plexiglass in front of you, knock it back almost into your face. You wince, you flinch. I can't follow anything. So this my definition of hockey, the reason it's hokey to me is 
it's just too hard to skate and stick handle that little puck at full speed. So to me, hockey becomes one long, continuous mistake. He passes to him, and he loses the puck to him, who passes to him, who loses the puck to him. It's one long turnover of mistakes because it's just too hard for its own good. It's too hard to set up shots on goal that are clean shots on the goalie. And then they score, and the horn goes off, and I'm like, how did it happen? And I I watched the replay about four times. I said, oh, wait a second. Oh, I see. It went off his skate, then it went off his stick, and then it went off that pad, and then it ricocheted off the post. Oh, it went in that way. It seems like every goal has some element of luck in it. They're rarely clean, you know, the the clean slap shot goal that goes through whichever hole it is, the two hole or the three hole. You, You just don't see many of those. It's one long, continuous mistake. It's one long, continuous turnover the way basketball would be if... If the basketball were so slick that you couldn't you couldn't keep a hold of it, if you if you were having a hard time dribbling the basketball, and the defender could just take it away from you at will, that would be hokey hockey to me. Instead, in basketball, all the guards bringing up the ball, they, they have great handles. Occasionally, they get their pockets picked, but not that often. So they can bring the ball down. They can work the ball for a very clean, open look. In fact, talking about the Lakers playing at crypto, they allow much of the year the most threes per game anybody does because they don't guard the three-point line. So you can get lots of open shots against the Lakers or in any basketball game. You, You can't get open shots in a hockey game. It's just mistake, 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 mistake 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 oh a shot it accidentally went in goal I forget what the final score was I think it was one all in this game until late Kings had to pull their goalie maybe it's two to one at that point they gave up a couple of open net goals I think it ended up four to one I read the lead in the I think it was the Orange County Register about what a sloppy game it was I'm thinking you, you could write that lead for every hockey game They're all sloppy. It's just too hard to control the puck at high speed on ice. It's it's amazing that they're as good as they are. But but who wants to watch that? It gives me a headache to try to follow the puck. It gives me the headache to, to try to figure out how the goal was scored. And then the opponents score goals, and they won't show it. Because you don't show the opponent's goal. Why not? I want to see what happened. I'm a Predators fan, right? I went to Vanderbilt. And they don't show the the opponent's goals? Don't don't you want to see how your goalie broke down? If you allow a touchdown pass, the Cowboys do. I'd I'd like to see it. I'd like to see whose fault it was. No, no, don't get it. So my point is that hockey has to have the greatest fans in the world because they have the hardest game to watch. I love those people. I I feel for those people. 
they're great to me. They're great to be around. The energy in that building for one goal was like it was for Mahomes' touchdown pass in overtime that won the Super Bowl. I honor that. I had a great time with my three friends. We talked. We laughed. We tried to watch hockey. Two of my friends didn't really care for hockey, and we had great conversations. And then we stayed until the bitter end of the game and exited so quickly and got in the car that we had no traffic. We were on what's called the 10 freeway here, rounded the 405 up to Wilshire. We were home in, I don't know, I think we timed it 13 minutes. It's amazing. You, You cannot get a more convenient and pleasurable experience going to any kind of game than I had that night at the hockey game. But man, was I ever happy to be home. Question from Ian from L.A. Just one, this isn't a question, it's a statement. Just want you to know, I played Brentwood last month and I shanked the ball on number seven. Okay, this is a callback to my recent first ever hole-in-one on the par three seventh hole at Brentwood Country Club where I'm a member, a hole that plays downhill but into the Pacific Ocean wind from the white tees, which are these second to last tees, second to back tees, 146 yards. I happen to accidentally flush a low seven iron into that wind that landed maybe 20 feet short of the cup and rolled straight in for my first and probably last ever hole in one. So Ian says that when he got to number seven, he shanked his tee shot, meaning he hit the ball with the hosel of the club. That's where the shaft connects to the club head. A shot that produces a weak, ugly squirt to the right. It goes nowhere slowly for a right-handed player. It's a horrifying nightmare of a shot that creates demons in your psyche. It's difficult to fix once it gets its claws in your subconscious. If you remember, I guess you'd have to be a golf fan, but recently at our sister course, which is called Riviera Country Club here in L.A., Tiger playing in that event, which is his event, on the first round day on 18, he readily admitted he shanked his shot. He hit it on the hosel and it squirted off to the right into the trees. It's rare for any pro golfer to shank a shot. Tiger then astoundingly recovered with a shot to within, I don't know, four or five feet, made that for a par. But if Ian did shank, in fact, his shot on number seven, it has the potential to leave the premises, as in go right over the fence that borders the right side of number seven, guarding golf balls 
from San Vicente Boulevard. That's four busy lanes actually along Brentwood Country Club, bordered by a row of food trucks that sit there most of the day. So if you do shank a shot on number seven, it has high potential to go right over the fence and right out into the traffic on San Vicente, if not hitting a windshield of one of the parked food trucks. I hope that was not the fate of Ian's ball. I hope that my hole-in-one hasn't made number seven virtually unplayable for guests. I hope that it doesn't now cause, you know, just by, by the pressure of playing number seven, that it doesn't create or induce shanks. I want to apologize to Ian for that. I do owe you a golf ball. I assume you lost it. So, Ian, when I run into you, I'll give you one of mine. I do play Titleist Pro V1X, and I owe you one. This is Hal from Stevens Point, Wisconsin. He asked a question that I've been asked often, and I've never gotten around to answering it, so I will just for you, Hal. Are you or have you ever been an outdoorsman? Okay, Hal. So, when I was growing up, I had cousins, but they were mostly older than me because my mother was the youngest child, had two older brothers, so they had children before her, each three. So most of those, five out of those six kids were older than me, even though I was the oldest of my mother's three children. Because of that, I had four older male cousins, and every Christmas it seemed like they would get something that I would want from my grandparents. So I had to watch them, as I was growing up, get their first rifles. And I'm talking about real live rifles. Because my grandfather hunted, and I just thought growing up, that's what you do. You hunt. So it wasn't until I turned maybe 10, maybe 12, finally talked my father and mother into just some kind of gun. I'll I'll take anything. So they bought me a a single-shot twenty-two caliber rifle. I think it came from Sears, real cheap, dirt cheap. Just took one shot at a time. It's called 22 short bullets. And they let me take it out to a dump outside of Oklahoma City and target practice with it. And my father saw right away, I was pretty good. So maybe another couple of years passed, maybe I'm 14-ish. And he lets me save up from working at his little hole-in-the-wall barbecue joint. He lets me save up and buy myself an automatic 22 caliber rifle that held, I don't know what it has. I still have it. I think it holds 14 22 long bullets. And my father would drive me out occasionally. I think I did this two or three times. 
to remote woods and, and let me, quote unquote, hunt by myself, probably 13 or 14, because I could really shoot my 22 automatic. I was deadly with it on cans. So I'm out trying to hunt. I'm thinking, rabbit? Birds? And I would walk and I would walk and I would start thinking, I don't want to kill a rabbit. I don't want to eat a rabbit. Why, why would I shoot a rabbit? I never even tried to shoot anything. I walked a lot, acted like I was hunting because my older cousins always hunted and brought back rabbits and squirrels and birds. I never shot at anything. I never killed anything. And that came and went pretty quickly in my life as a hunter. My other outdoors experiences occurred in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and at church camp in Eagle Lake, Colorado, because in those three cases, once each, I went on a camp out. First time in Cub Scouts. We had a five-mile hike with backpacks, bedrolls, sleeping bags, took our own food, pitched our own tents, and slept overnight somewhere outside of Oklahoma City. And of course, it was in the fall, and it got cold, and it rained all night long. And we dug little trenches along our tent to try to keep the water from spilling in, but it did. And our sleeping bags got soaked. We got soaked. And it was one long, miserable night of me thinking, man, I wish I were in my own bed. And then I tried Boy Scouts. I didn't last that long. I didn't really like it. But we went on another hike and another camp out and another cookout. And the food was awful. And would you believe it rained again? And the tents got flooded. My sleeping bag got soaked. And I kept waking up in the middle of the night because I couldn't sleep, thinking, I wish I were back in my own bed. And finally, I went to church camp in Colorado. And we went on a hike. And we took little portable tents and we pitched them up in the Rocky Mountains. And it poured rain all night. And we tried to dig little trenches around our tents to keep the rain out, flooding out, but we couldn't. We got soaked. We got chilled to the bone. And I wished, man, I was back in Oklahoma City in my own bed. That was my last time I ever tried to camp out. And then how, I must admit, I saw a movie called Deliverance. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. If you're an outdoorsman, I don't recommend that you watch Deliverance. From the, I guess, from the 70s, Burt Reynolds is in it, John Voight's in it. It's really good, but it's really scary. It's really a horror movie in disguise. And trust me, if you're an outdoorsman, you like to camp out, you watch Deliverance, and you'll think really hard about ever going out into the wilds again.
That is it for episode 102. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.